with the research that I was doing, I was really looking at pathogen mitigation. So we, we were inoculating feed with some surrogate organisms and looking at how different steam conditioning temperatures and steam conditioning times and, uh, quite honestly, some feed additives could help mitigate pathogens in the feed, which becomes really important uh, as we move more and more towards um, antibiotic-free. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Fumezyme from DSM Fermanish. You can combat fumonisins in your feed with Fumezyme from DSM Fermanish. Fumezyme is the only FDA-approved enzyme to degrade fumonisins. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Today I am here with John Boney. Welcome to the show, John. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Oh, awesome. So I'm excited to talk to you later about some other topics. But first, I want to hear, how did you get into poultry? Yeah, great question. It's uh, it's an interesting story, uh, one that's probably common for many folks. Uh, I left school uh, with a passion for animal sciences and feeding the world. Um, thought that I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, learned that there were other opportunities, uh, such as grad school. Uh, learned that I needed to get involved with a research lab. Um, and, and so that was kind of my course of action when I went uh, to West Virginia and got my undergraduate degree. I got involved with the research lab. Uh, making the decision, I, I looked at um, uh, uh, protein consumption trends per capita here in the U.S., uh, learned about uh, the growing consumption of poultry, and, and that really kind of helped uh, guide me and, and drive me into the poultry industry. Birds are constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in their feed. Fumonisins are a highly prevalent mycotoxin that can impact health and performance. DSM Furmanish offers a range of analytical services to assess mycotoxin contamination and solutions to combat mycotoxins. One of those solutions is Fumezyme, the only FDA-approved enzyme to combat fumonisins. Visit dsm.com forward slash Fumezyme to learn more. <laughs> that seems very calculated. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I left home with the uh, the goal of, uh, you know, earning a, a reasonable salary and, and not having <laughs> to, to do some of the hard labor that I see my, my family having to do. Uh, even up into their older ages, so. Yeah. Well, you're definitely right on the per capita consumption, so uh, your predictions of the upward trend were <laughs> accurate. That's right. Kind of surprised you didn't uh, become an economist or <laughs> something else like that. Yeah, maybe the, didn't have quite the, the background in, in math that I needed, so I stuck oh, with poultry yeah. production and nutrition. That's true. That's true. So how did how did you get to your current position after you graduated with your uh, bachelor's degree? What happened? 
So after my undergraduate degree, when I was involved with uh, undergraduate research uh, and involved with uh, feed milling research, I had the opportunity uh, to take that to the next level, uh, started managing the feed mill uh, and was offered uh, to, to go to graduate school, obtain my master's degree. Uh, so I really, and what I preach to my students is just, I took advantage of an opportunity. Uh, so I, I tried to put in a lot of hard work uh, in that, presented some opportunities, and I just took advantage of them. And uh, that, that opportunity to manage the pilot feed mill at West Virginia University uh, gave me the opportunity to work with not only folks in my own lab and in my own field, but with other uh, graduate students and PIs across the animal uh, industries uh, that were being studied there at West Virginia. So, so it was a neat uh, journey to get where I am. Um, and, you know, I, I did that for two years, earned the master's degree. Uh, and because of the really specific training that I was getting and some really good mentorship opportunities uh, through the American Feed Industry Association and West Virginia University, I had some mentors that encouraged me to uh, pursue the Ph.D., uh, take it to the, that next level uh, because of that really specific training. There would be some neat opportunities for employment uh, and neat career opportunities. So that's what I did. I, I once again capitalized on an opportunity, uh, and that led me here to Penn State. That's awesome. So so was your master's in feed milling technology, or was it in a nutrition or like a combined program? It was really a combined program, bridging the mm. gap. So understanding how... Uh, you could formulate a diet with maybe some novel ingredients and use the feed mill, mill use the feed mill as a tool um, to help improve uh, poultry performance. Yeah, so it's really, really, really interesting. Yeah, bridging the gap is what we were doing. Yeah, yeah, very cool. So, what was the focus of your PhD program after that? It sounds like you had some cool background to move move on. Yeah, in the master's degree, mostly on novel feed ingredient uh, development and the, the impacts to production uh, and uh, pellet quality. When I moved into the PhD and got to be a little bit more creative um, with, with the research that I was doing, I was really looking at pathogen mitigation. So we, we were inoculating feed with some surrogate organisms and looking at how different steam conditioning temperatures and steam conditioning times and, uh, quite honestly, some feed additives could help mitigate pathogens in the feed, which becomes really important uh, as we move more and more towards um, antibiotic-free and uh, these other specialty-type uh, feeding programs where we have less tools in our toolbox, right? We want to do everything we can to minimize uh, the, the pathogen load being introduced to these animals, and, and feed is one of those avenues. Yeah, I, I think that's such a cool area because we forget that the feed itself could be a source, so I'm happy other people are working in that area because tell you what, feed mill is super cool. I don't ever want to run one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, very good. Yeah, uh, it is a great opportunity, one that uh, may be missed. Uh, but I do think that the those mill guys understand this, and I think they're doing a good job. Uh, they're certainly interested in the results of that research and, and trying to use it to make decisions, especially when they're using some of those ingredients that uh, may have a higher likelihood of, of having or containing a pathogen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... Um... You're, you're currently uh, in an assistant professor role. What are you doing uh, for your research focus? 
Yeah, so I started here in 2018. I have a, an extension appointment as well as a teaching appointment. So I don't really have a defined research appointment. But mm -hmm. the cool cool thing about Penn State here is uh, with the extension program, they, they strongly encourage an applied research program. So what I do is I work with our uh, poultry industry here in Pennsylvania. We're identifying some of their needs uh, and we, we find creative ways and we do research here to answer some of their very specific questions. Mm. Uh, so so it's, it's really fun. Um, the industry is really engaged with us here. Uh, we have some great students that are being trained uh, and largely uh, their training involves getting out in the field in Pennsylvania on poultry farms, uh, giving them a really great background, a breadth of experience uh, that positions them well for uh, employment once they, they graduate. Yeah, the on-farm experience is really important. I, <laughs> I'm glad that you're training students in that aspect. Um, are your, your typical farms that are looking to you for guidance, are they uh, more broiler-focused or layer or kind of a combination? Uh, so we have uh, a really diverse poultry industry here in Pennsylvania, so uh, we, we pretty much have it all. We have mm -hmm. caged layers, we have uh, cage-free layers, but primarily I work on the meat bird side. So mm -hmm. largely with uh, conventional and organic broiler chicken production uh, and heavily involved in the turkey production here in Pennsylvania. Oh, very cool. Sounds like a nice combination. <laughs> yeah, it works well. Um, so what are some of the, the projects that the producers have been interested in lately? So I'll say my first project here uh, had nothing to do with nutrition or feed milling, but that's extension. So we know yep. that uh, the questions are going to be, they're going to vary. Uh, and this was timely. This was related to the Global Animal Partnership or GAP uh, hmm. lighting requirements for turkey poults. Uh, and there were some concerns about providing uh, this continuous darkness from the day of hatch, which was a requirement mm. of a gap lighting program. So we went out and got to see um, see these bolts and fully appreciate their concerns uh, that the producers had and brought that back and were able to work with uh, one of the lighting outfits and, and they we, we renovated a bar and have some relevant lights and uh, light systems and we we studied this and we were able to report back to our producers here in pennsylvania that um, although contrary to maybe what they believed uh, the bird that we're feeding now uh, was able to successfully um, find feed find water um, get through that critical three or four day uh, starve out period even with that six hours of continuous darkness from the day of hatch so mm -hmm. it was uh it gave them a little bit more confidence that all right the bird that we're using and a program that that we're using because of the decision to use gap uh, these birds are able to grow we're able to maintain uh, mortality early mortality uh, and they were very happy with that uh, other things that we do uh, where, where i got most excited because it's in the field that i work uh, is looking at on-farm nutrient segregation so understanding how feed quality uh, can impact the presentation of feed and nutrients in front of the bird in the feed pans in the barns. Uh, and that has allowed me to take students uh, to commercial feed mills and integrated feed mills across Pennsylvania uh, and work with them to follow that feed into the house and fully appreciate how uh, the emphasis or lack of emphasis on feed quality 
can really impact what's presented to the bird and ultimately impact how that bird performs. Yeah. So what do you think about the role of, I'll just say pellet quality or crumble quality since you said most of your work was in the meat bird. Um, how, how is that impacting when you get on site, what it looks like when it arrives and then when it gets to the end of that feed chain? Is that, is that some of the area that you guys are interested in? That's exactly what we're interested in. So we're, we're following it from the feed mill. Uh, when we get here, we're, we're looking at that feed before it's uh, either blown or augered into the feed bins on site, following that into the house, following it into the hopper, and then following at various locations along the feed mm -hmm. line. And uh, we know that it does change, right? Of course it changes. The feed bin is really dynamic and how those pellets and fines move through those feed bins uh, is dynamic and that tends to change day over day. Um, we know that if you have to pull the feed a very long distance, so say that your feed bins are at the end of the barn um, and, and it, the feed is pulled the entire length of the house, uh, it's gonna have a greater degree, on the, greater degree of impact uh, on nutrient segregation than if the feed bins are located more centrally uh, and augured shorter distances to either end of the house, uh, that, that's all going to impact feed quality. Uh, and then we, we're also looking at the quality of the feed produced at the mill. So if you're starting with a lower feed quality, feed quality in this case I'm referring to the physical quality of the feed, uh, starting with a lower feed quality, you're going to have a greater degree of segregation. At least that's what our research has pointed out. Uh, whereas if you have more of a focus on uh, physical feed quality, pellet quality, uh, we tend to see a lesser degree of uh, nutrient segregation or a more uniform presentation of feed in those feed pans along the feed lines. So when you say feed quality coming from the mill, are you talking about the relative protein content, for example, of the corn or the soy that's coming in? Um, or is it more a uniform grind size before it goes into a pelleter? Or, or both of those things may be important. Well, all of those are important. Really what we are looking at is we're trying to ensure that the feed that is presented to the bird represents that diet that was formulated by the nutritionist. Yeah. Right, so there are many steps along the way, the many, many things that contribute to the overall quality of the feed. Uh, so in all of our research, uh, we, we started with using feed mills that are routinely measuring uh, the performance of their mixers. So we know that we're starting with uh, a mixer that has a 5% CV or less in all the research we've done so far, because we want to start with a uniform feed, a uh, feed that really represents that formulation that the nutritionist provided to the mill. Um, you know, this line of research could continue and hopefully does continue for many years where we can look at the impact of the mixture performance on this idea of nutrient segregation. But before we even got there, we wanted to fully appreciate what happens when you have a mixture that's uh, performing well. We're mixing feed before it goes into the pellet mill uh, that really represents that formulation that the nutritionist uh, set to the mill. Uh, so then uh, we know that that feed changes. There's been uh, several uh, papers that support this, uh, and there are several reasons why it changes. There's you know, the journey of the, the feed from the feed mill on the truck. It has to be augered from the truck into a bin. It then moves through that bin, and then it has to move down the line, uh, the feed line that may differ in length. 
And all of those different facets of transport can impact the, the physical presentation of that feed. Yeah. So that's that's what we're trying to kind of we're trying to tease out those differences in our lab, uh, fully appreciating that throughput demands drive this industry. We know that uh, at the end of the day, we have to provide feed to the birds. However, hopefully our research is giving folks uh, another reason to really think about pellet quality, think about mm -hmm. feed quality, and maybe consider uh, investing in feed quality improvements uh, for uh, I think we'll get into some of the results later, but at the end of the day, uh, this can impact the performance of the bird. Yeah. So, so what are some of the biggest variables that, or indicators that you look for that would be initial suggestions maybe for improvement? Is it just, does the pellet hold up to all this travel or is it starting all the way back at what is the tolerance for your, your CVs for mixing? Maybe it's all of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think to, so that we have time to get through everything. I think I'll just yeah. say um, at the beginning of this, when we first started down this road and I decided to put a lot of effort into understanding feed flow and nutrient segregation, we said, we need to identify a marker. What, what is mm. the best nutrient segregation marker? Uh, and in a perfect world, that would be something that uh, we could maybe uh, achieve with NIR because it would be rapid. It would be relatively cheap. Um, and so we, so we explored that a bit, and, and that has not really uh, lended itself well to, to identifying a nutrient segregation marker. Uh, mm -hmm. we, crude protein, there was too much variability there. We, we were not able to, to use that as a good marker. Um, so then we looked at other things. We, we started measuring um, amino acids. So we, we, we looked at 12 different amino acids. We looked at phytase activity. We did some wet chem. Um, and, and looked at um, all of the proximates, uh, et cetera. You, you can use other feed additives as well. And, and what we found is that phytase activity, if you measure phytase activity, we can certainly pick up differences in the house. Uh, mm. But being able to pick up a difference and actually having something that impacts the bird can be two different things. So then we had to verify, is phytase activity a good segregation marker? Same thing with amino acids. We, we were able to pick up differences in amino acids in various regions of this house. Uh, but once mm. again, the question was, are those differences enough, significant enough to impact performance of the flock? So uh, that's what uh, several of my students have done as part of their master's uh, research is, is doing little parts of that. So if we look at the first experiment that we ran, we, we had four different scenarios. We looked at two pellet qualities, uh, what I would call um, standard for, for the industry, I think, would be our lower feed quality. And then we looked at something where we had a really uh, big focus on improving feed quality. So we, we got up to about 80% pellet in the house. Uh, and I think that that is something that can be achievable in, in, mm -hmm. in some cases. So we, we had the two feed qualities, and then we had those two feed line lengths. And that was, once again, whether the bend was located at the end of the house or more centrally located. So we're trying to understand, does the length of the feed line impact segregation and, and our ability to pick it up? So we, we had that. We, we filled feed lines. Uh, we worked with the commercial mill here in Pennsylvania, uh, creating the two different feed qualities. Uh, and once we filled the feed lines, we actually went through and collected feed from every uh, feed pan uh, in these houses. Um, so 
we, we did this in a replicated manner. Uh, it took an incredible amount of time and effort. We had over 3,000 feed samples that we, we handled. We, we looked at the pellet to fine ratio. We scanned for proximate analysis, uh, select samples we used for wet chem and also for phytase activity analysis to really get a, to get a good picture of what's happening in the house. Um, and we had those four replicate feed lines uh, to appreciate to, to try to appreciate feed flow in the house. And uh, we, we found kind of the best case and worst case scenarios, uh, best case being a, a high feed quality or the improved feed quality in those shorter feed lines. And when we were able to move food, feed, that high quality feed shorter distances, we eliminated nutrient segregation. Oh, wow. So that feed was uniform. At least all yeah. of the uh, variables that we measured uh, did not differ st uh, statistically. So it was a uniform presentation of feed to all those birds in that that were eating off of that feed line. Whereas in our worst case scenario, the poor feed quality or maybe standard feed quality, if, if you will, uh, in those long feed lines, we had um, six of the 12 amino acid concentrations varied along that feed line. Uh, our phytase activity differed, and it actually differed. Uh, it was about 70% different in different regions of the house. So we had this incredible amount of phytase activity variation uh, along these long feed lines. And we thought, wow, that's uh, that's incredible to one, pick that up, but two, uh, perhaps we, we've just identified this great nutrient segregation marker. Yeah. So um, we, we decided, all right, let's take what we learned in the field and let's bring it back to the university and try to feed birds in a similar manner uh, in replicated pens uh, to try to tease out, will this impact the bird? Mm, uh, yeah. and, and so that's what a couple of my students have been uh, doing with their time. Yeah. So what have you done? I know you said you do um, some of the phytase work was done commercially and then you brought it. To the research level, have you have you added to that story? Do you think it should be used as a biomarker, or what else can you tell us about that? That's super interesting. Yeah, so uh, it would be nice if I could tell you that phytase activity was this this great nutrient segregation marker, but what I found, um, we we brought this back to the university. We designed a um, we, we incorporated the phytase activity differences from the field as well as those amino acid differences that we've, mm -hmm. we saw in the field. So we had uh, a 10% difference in amino acid concentration. So we went with breeder level, breeder recommendation levels, and we dropped it 10% to represent the 10% the yeah. difference that we saw in the house. And then we also formulated for um, a standard dose of phytase at 500 units um, in and we created a basal diet, but we, we withheld phytase. So then we added phytase to that basal diet with this reduced uh, NPP at three different levels, 250, 500, and 750 FTUs of, of phytase per kilogram of feed. So that was our six treatments that we studied. Uh, and what we found at the end of the day, that that phytase activity variability had no impact on the performance of our birds. And we looked at feed intake, live weight gain. We looked at body weights. Uh, we even looked at bone mineralization. So we looked at tibia ash. We looked at the milligrams of tibia ash per kilogram of body weight so that we could, could compare that back to the actual size of the bird. And we followed it into the processing plant and looked at breast yield, wing yield, thigh yields, et cetera. 
uh, at the end of the day, uh, at least in this scenario, with the standard dose of phytase using breeder-recommended levels of uh, phosphorus and calcium, we were not able to pick up any performance differences. And, and I think the research supports that, right? Um, if we think about uh, those birds being able to consume um, phosphorus or, or phytase to liberate phosphorus from the diet over long periods of time, long periods at least throughout grow out, uh-huh. uh, they were able to, to take up enough phosphorus um, a, as they grew over time that, that they were not at a deficient level, at least not at a level that impacted performance that we could pick up. Uh, yeah. But what was uh, interesting here was the amino acid density work, just, just as anybody would, would assume, uh, yeah. if you if you vary amino acid concentrations by uh, that, that 10%, we went 105% of breeder recommendations and 95% of breeder recommendations. So that was our, our spread. Um, and of course, when you feed them more a more amino acid dense diet. Uh, they had uh, body weights that were improved by about 170 grams a bird. Uh, we had a six point feed conversion ratio benefit to the bird when they had this addition of um, amino acids, which we would expect, right? That's what all of the amino acid research yeah. uh, suggests. But the important part, bringing this all together, uh, is that phytase activity, at least in the work that we found, uh, might not be a great marker of nutrient segregation, but our amino acid concentrations are. Uh, and, and that can be good or bad. Amino acid analysis uh, have an expense. Uh, it's not something that you can uh, do in-house in most cases. Most of the time you have to send that off to a lab. Uh, but if it's something of interest, if, if nutrient or the presentation of nutrients to birds in the house uh, is something that, that folks are interested in, um, I would recommend that they consider looking at uh, amino acids. So could you fairly well connect back maybe some variability in the flock due to maybe a bird preference on the feed chain, depending on the style of feed chain where the bin is? I mean, are we are, are we seeing flocks that have more variability maybe because of these feed quality issues? Or are there maybe too many variables there to make that connection? But I just wonder about flock variability and just a basic thing of where is the bin and what where does that bird prefer to go in the barn? Yeah, and that's part of the bigger picture, right? So folks may say, well, why am I going to invest this time and energy in chasing down six points of feed conversion uh, at the expense of the, the efforts it takes to improve feed quality? But if we really bring it back to flock uniformity and why that's important as we move to more automated feed, or I'm sorry, more automated processing facilities, bird mm-hmm. processing facilities, and the need for a uniform bird, um, certainly we, we can look to the, the flock for this. So what we, our, our next round of research and um, what we just wrapped up, uh, hoping to get this out for review uh, to be published soon, uh, is we looked at um, nutrient segregation and the impact of the, the flock uniformity over time. Uh, and we did this on farm. So we, we used a barn uh, in Pennsylvania that has some hanging scales that also uses migration fences as part of their standard management practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so birds are limited to where they can be uh, in the house uh, for, for obvious reasons. Um, and 
so we have hanging scale bird weight data. We, we get about 3,000 data points a day uh, from each of those uh, segments of the barn. Uh, and we can track that feed quality. And we did track that feed quality over uh, a five-day period in the finisher period. And, and we do. We see that the birds uh, closer to uh, the feed hopper, where the feed comes into the barn, uh, being provided a feed that has more fines or less pellets, so a, a lower pellet to fine ratio. And as you move further and further away from that feed bin, the, the pellets kind of sift down through, segregate out, and you have more pellets at the end of the house. Um, and so those birds, uh, we, we were seeing um, sizable, significant improvements in, in birds in different parts of the barn. Um, and I'll say where this becomes a challenge um, in one of the nuances, and, and these are things that we have to talk to uh, producers about, in those barns where we don't use migration fences, especially in summer grow outs when there's a preference to be closer to that fresh air coming into the barn, uh, we oftentimes have less or we have more birds at that end of the house yeah. uh, and more competition for feed. Uh, so there are more and more birds that are left with the fines and the feed pans. Mm -hmm. We have less birds at the end of the house uh, that are trying to, uh, the, because of their desire to be up near the fresh air coming in. So you might not see those bird differences. Uh, they might not be as obvious or noticeable if you're not using migration fences. Mm, uh, just, yeah just because of where the barn, where the birds are in the house. So it's definitely dynamic. Um, but I think if in a perfect world where we can uh, keep the same number of birds in each segment of the barn so that there's uh, equal uh, competition at feeders, uh, you, you can see differences in performance of birds in different areas of the house. Yeah. So... I have a question about the issue with fines, and I, I have some different ideas of what, what the issue is. But I think of fines as, I mean, I love Lucky Charms. I think of fines as the junk at the end of the box that you don't want floating on your cereal. Like, <laughs> you know, it's the, it's kind of like, you know, sticky. It, it, it doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't, it's not the stuff that you want. You want the actual pieces and the marshmallows. So is the issue with fines a texture sort of thing like that would be, or is it combined with, it is, you know, some different component of the feed that is getting, you know, broken down. And the issue is that it's not a complete feed, if you will, that, you know, it's the segregation or, so is it texture, segregation or both? Yeah, great question. And that that's complicated. And I'll <laughs> say that it can be a complete feed, right? So mm. we, part of our work is we did separate pellets and fines and look at the nutrient composition of pellets and fines separately. And it depends on the, the setup of the feed mill, right? What, mm. what is their uh, enzyme addition strategy? Are they doing, oh, sure. are, are they adding enzymes at the mixture or are they adding some post pellet? Um, and what's their fat addition strategy, all of these things can impact um, what's in those fines. So what we found is, of course, if you apply phytase post-pelleting, uh, there is a greater likelihood that as it, that feed moves longer distances, 
it can sloth off and you can mm -hmm. actually have a higher concentration of phytase in the fines compared to the pellets. Uh, mm -hmm. so, so you have that to contend with. Um, if you are applying um, all the or a large portion of the fat or oil, whatever your energy source is, uh, post pelleting, you can have a difference in the energy profile or the crude fat of the feed pans along the feed line. Uh, so, so there is some variation there. Um, we're, we're still chasing down what that means and if that really contributes to differences in performance. It's part of the research that we're doing now. Uh, as far as texture uh, goes, the, the birds do have a preference for these larger particles, right? If, mm -hmm. if you give them the opportunity to eat pellets or fines, in most cases, as long as those pellets aren't super hard and that where they can't actually break them up a little bit, uh, in most cases, they will prefer that pellet. Uh, so they will, that, that's just their preference. They have really great eyesight and they can see those large particles and that, that tends to be what they go for. And we, we've seen this uh, for, for decades. The literature supports that. Um, so I think that um, that's why we see the birds consume those pellets when they drop into the fines first, perhaps leaving the fines for the, the less dominant birds to, yeah. to consume later. Yeah. Those less dominant birds don't even know what they're missing because they never get to see it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Especially if they're down on the end of the house near where the feed comes in. A lot of times yeah. that's ground up pretty badly. Oh, yeah. I would have thought the opposite with uh, damage for the chain and whatnot, but I see exactly how most of the fines could be concentrated there because the, the chain wouldn't pull it down to the others. <laughs> Yeah, and that, I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? The, the, the drop down tube where the feed drops in, um, as we continue to pull more fines and pellets over top of that, the vibrations of mm -hmm. the feed line working, the auger working, moves those fines down through the, through the pellets. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why we tend to see that slug of fines early in the house. Yeah, yeah. Stuff you don't think about till you have to think about it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, is, uh, is there anything else that we didn't cover today that you feel is important to say before we get to our last three questions? I just want to conclude with, we, we're now looking into uh, what happens over time. So the first work mm. that we did, that, that's out, that's published, um, and that really just looked at a snapshot in time. Um, and I want folks to know we had to start there. We had the benchmark uh, with one snapshot in time. We're now into barns. We're assessing this uh, over time as the, the birds consume this feed to get a better appreciation for, for the impacts to the birds. So uh, we don't have all the answers yet. Do know that it is in process. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I'll have to look, look for that. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation, healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. 
your partner in improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. They believe the following additives are necessary in the poultry dietary. Functional lipids for an efficient dietary energy management. Phospholipids for emulsification, achieving a better nutrient intake. MCTs to provide energy and modulate the microflora within the intestines and enzymes for elevated use of fibrous materials and byproducts. So I want to end the podcast today uh, with the three questions that we ask all of the guests. And the first question is, what is your favorite poultry-related resource? Yeah, so poultry-specific uh, resource would probably be the commercial poultry nutrition textbook. Mm. Uh, and I, I use that in many of my lectures and also help uh, guide graduate students with, with that textbook as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good Good suggestion. What year was that book written in? Is it, is there a recent update? Um, I'm not using the most recent update, um, and, and I, I don't have it right here on me, but yeah. uh, it's been used for for many years by many Long of time. the poultry nutritionists. Yeah. yeah. I always like to know the reference year because um, the genetics companies update their requirements frequently, and I know that doesn't always make it into the kind of the bigger picture books and whatnot, but also the nutritionists who actually feed also feed a little differently than those requirements. So I always like to know what year people's sources are from. So yeah. super interesting. Um, the second question is, what is a favorite non-poultry related resource? Yeah, so I think non-poultry related resource is, uh, it's a very short book. It's called Elements of Style. And yeah. it is a writing resource, uh, and I am I am an instructor, and I, I have resident education classes that I that I teach here, um, and the writing or ability of, of our students to write um, could use some work, and that's a textbook that I always refer them to to take them back to the basics, um, and and I think it's important that we uh, communicate effectively. Yeah, I 100% agree. That's a <laughs> great. Yeah. Uh, great one. Um, the last question is, for somebody that wants to get into the poultry industry, what is your best advice for them to be successful? Uh, so I think the best advice I would give them is to uh, fully embrace the industry, appreciate the importance of the industry in feeding our uh, growing global population. Uh, it's, it's really incredible what, what people in our field can do and continue to do. Uh, so I think having an appreciation for uh, where the industry was, where it is now, and, and having some vision for, for where we can go. I think feeding the, the world is really a noble cause, and I, I just want folks to really appreciate what the industry uh, is and, and what it means to many of our uh, families that rely on us. And the best advice I always give is uh, you got to work hard. Um, and, and I think that if you work hard, you'll, you'll separate yourself uh, from the others pretty quickly. You'll separate yourself from the fines, huh? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I do have one more question, which is unrelated to most of everything we've talked about. Do you have a name for your chicken anatomy model? In the back, yeah. That is Brenda. <laughs> Brenda! That is Brenda. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, I, I'll have to say that uh, we, I had a graduate student, uh, a young man, and he had an alter ego. Uh, and when that would come out, we, we called him Brenda. And uh, once he graduated about the same time uh, the chicken came in, I said, that's, that's got to be Brenda. That is, oh, that, that is great. I, I really appreciate that. So, <laughs> well, thank you for chatting today. I, I always learn a lot from our guests and you were no exception. So I can have a better appreciation for some of the variability that can occur now in uh, manufacturing and feed lines. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> You're welcome. Enjoy the rest of your day. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.